Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 1 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from the four volumes in defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. Podcast 8 is entitled, Where Do Laws Come From? We have all heard the conundrum, what came first, the chicken or the egg? It is similar to the question, what came first, the act of creation or the laws of creation? Grown out of the scientific explanation of the Big Bang as the beginning of creation some 14 billion years ago, science appears to assume that all creation came from the explosion of a singularity smaller than an atom. Science claims that we live in an accidental universe, and that man, in the words of Bertrand Russell, English philosopher, is nothing more than an accidental collocation of atoms. In effect, science claims that the egg, or the singularity, came before the chicken. One is compelled to challenge science and ask, how can something come from nothing? Even if the Big Bang occurred 14 billion years ago, it occurred only because of law. Where did law come from? Science believes that it will all end in a giant heat death. At least on that point, Isaiah would say you are somewhat right. Lift up your eyes to heaven and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. And so would the Apostle Peter. Second Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The difference, of course, is that the holy prophets predicted that something greater would follow. Isaiah concluded, Isaiah 51, 6, But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. And John the Revelator said, Revelation 21, 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. That is the difference between the nihilism of science and the optimism of Christianity. Science claims there was nothing before the Big Bang, that all creation is only 14 billion years old, and there would be nothing after the giant heat death, what they call maximum equilibrium. Christians claim that God is eternal, and though galaxies may come and go, creation never ends, that because of Christ, man will be resurrected and live forever. There's no contradiction between Christianity and the theory that the Big Bang marks the origin of our small universe, just as there is no contradiction with the scientific theory that galaxies are generated by black holes. The difference, of course, is this, explained best by St. John. Revelation 21, 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The New Jerusalem is known as the Eternal City. It will endure forever, for it is the home of God. The Big Bang, if it occurred, could well have occurred when scientists say. Its study is one of the most fascinating theories of science. 
But life and law did not begin 14 billion years ago. Life has always existed. As with matter and energy, the essence we call life, that is intelligence and consciousness, cannot be created or destroyed. All things temporal, such as the universe, must have a beginning, and that which has a beginning will have an end. The earth, for example, the solar system, the Milky Way galaxy. But that which is spiritual has neither beginning nor end. It is made of eternal matter. That's why the body dies, but the spirit doesn't. First, I would like to have Linda read a thought-provoking poem by the enigmatic Edgar Allan Poe, entitled, A Dream Within a Dream. Take this kiss upon the brow, and imparting from you now, thus much let me avow. You are not wrong, who deem that my days have been a dream. Yet if hope hath flown away in a night or in a day, in a vision or in none, is it therefore the less gone? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hands grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep while I weep. While I weep, O oh God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? O oh God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? Scientists tell us that the earth is about 4.5 billion years old. Linda and I live in the Great Smoky Mountains, affectionately called the Smokies, whose origins date back a billion years. On our daily ambulation on undulating hills and narrow winding roads, through dense deciduous forests, Linda and I listen to the music of waterfalls and swift-flowing streams. The sparkling water noisily waltzing over well-worn rocks, smoothed by millions of years of relentless erosion. My cousin, Elvin, and I fish the creeks that flow from Martha Sunquist Park, called the Great Gulf by the locals, where the high waters flow swiftly over huge boulders, splitting into other roaring creeks. Elvin, a master fly fisherman, is my tutor. Stand downstream, he advises, or the fish will see your shadow. He dips his hand into the shallow water's edge and dips out a handful of small black sticks that run thick along the black bank. He picks through the sticks, selecting four or five, and throws the others back into the water, where they are swiftly carried downstream. He hands the remaining sticks to me. They are uniform, one the image of the other, in size, shape, texture, and color. Two short black sticks, about an inch long, glued together. It is stick bait, he said. It made no sense to me, but trusting Elvin, I hooked one of the sticks to my tiny black fly, which Elvin had hand-tied. Break them open, he said patiently. Inside is the larva of the catus fly. Place it on your hook. The fish, when they strike, the fly will linger longer. That made more sense than dangling his stick at the end of my hook, so I broke this tiny stick open, and sure enough, inside was a white larva. Elvin told me the difference between the caddis fly and the stone fly. He added, I cut them open and study what they eat. They almost always have something black inside. The little stick, which to the untrained eye looked like every other stick on the banks, is a perfect camouflage, a cocoon to protect the larva from being eaten before they hatch. Meanwhile, Elvin, age 70, racked throughout his body with advanced cancer, catches ten fish while I struggle catching one. 
We fished between chemotherapy treatments while his energy is still high. We both knew that each day was a gift from God. I knew well the horrors of cancer. I sat by my wife's bed in the emergency room as she slipped into eternity as quietly as a shadow, leaving the room while emptiness slipped in like a ghost to haunt me and become my new companion. It went to bed with me and got up with me as a new bride, never leaving my side except during rare moments of distraction. I sat by the hospital bed of two daughters who miraculously survived the healing tedium of hours of surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. Elvin and I did not go fishing again. He passed away silently into the silent eternity. I love to eat fresh fish, but I have never been a great fisherman or a great sportsman or a great anything. I find the physical side of life rather tedious and boring with meaningless repetition. I recall once when my then very young daughter Shara and I were sitting on the college football stadium watching a confusing game. It was a father-daughter outing. I did not realize that she was as bored as I was until she said, They both have had a turn, Dad. Let's go home. Elvin, in his quiet, professional manner, had instructed me on the peculiar habits of fish, but I was more interested in the science of things. I looked into the rushing white waters of the Cascading Creek, and I asked myself, Why do fish tend to swim upstream when it is easier to swim downstream? Why do they always face the current? I don't know the scientific explanation. Perhaps it is as simple as the fact that insects that unhappily land on the water float downstream into the crafty trout's open mouth. But it is more, I think. I need Elvin to explain to me how to fish, but I need Isaac Asimov, called the great explainer of the age, to explain to me why fish swim upstream. But I asked a different question. What would happen if the fish preferred to swim downstream? It occurred to me that if fish swam downstream, the high creeks would soon be void of fish, and all the fish would swim to the rivers and from the rivers to the seas. So much depends upon fish swimming upstream. For some random reason, I remembered another natural phenomenon. Water expands when it freezes. If ice didn't expand, the ponds would freeze over and all the fish would die. Again, I asked. Why does water expand when it freezes? To save the fish? Is it by necessity? Do all laws exist by necessity? Is it by some inexplicable fortunate accident that it cannot be any other way? And luck has it that fish are saved and the ecology of life preserved? Science believes it all began by accident. Science really cannot explain nature. Science can only identify the laws of nature based upon the principle of causality. That is not an explanation. That is a description. They may describe the behavior of fish, or the behavior of ice, or the behavior of atoms, or the conditions and effects of law. But that is mere acute observation. They don't explain why laws exist or where laws came from. We know, of course, that the world cannot exist without law, but that's not an explanation. That, too, is an observation. Why must the world exist? Does the world and everything in it exist by necessity? The answer is terribly important. Science, which rejects intelligent design, says yes. Those who believe in intelligent design say no. It exists because God created it. If things exist by necessity, we are mere cogs in a cosmic machine, without purpose, without agency or free will, and without consciousness. Are we, like an elaborate cuckoo clock, merely an amusement for the gods? Science is brilliant at explaining the causal connection among natural laws and the effects upon our environment. 
But science cannot explain where laws came from or why they exist in the first place. They cannot explain why there is something rather than nothing. Science, divorcing science from individuals who are scientists, is forever nonplussed because science denies the existence of God. Accident, the cause for everything, becomes their God. Christians accept, unquestionably, the scientific method, but personally hold the view that laws were originally organized by intelligent design. Nature has a designer in the same way that buildings have a designer. The purpose of law, then, is contained in the effect. Laws are necessary because the effect is necessary, and not the other way around. Scientists focus on the conditions of law. Christianity focuses on the effects of law. Science answers the question how. Christianity answers the question why. Nature sustains life. Therefore, Christians reason, nature was designed primarily for sustaining life. It follows that since humans are the highest form of life, natural laws were primarily formed to sustain human life, though all living things have joy in their existence. We are the children of God and were sent to earth for a purpose. Christianity, with the help of law, attempts to define that purpose. To my surprise, the dilemma of why fish swim upstream revealed the answer to a mystery that has haunted me for many years. As a Christian, I accept as irrefutable the truth that Christ created the earth, and everything in the earth, including man. Since I am addressing this book to Christians, I don't worry about the burden of proof. It is an act of faith which we as Christians share. The question then is, did natural laws self-exist? And Christ, a great scientist, use those laws for his purposes? Or did he declare his purpose? and create laws from the self-existent properties of matter and energy to fulfill that purpose. In other words, did he tailor laws to create earth to bring about his eternal purposes? As I considered the relatively trivial fact of fish swimming upstream, it occurred to me that purpose came first and creation second, that law came first and order second, that Christ organized laws to create earth to exalt man. Fish swimming upstream is a necessary part of the law of creation, but it is not the purpose of creation. Men and women are the purpose of creation. We are all children of God, and he created earth to be our home. What is more startling is that earth, though the temporary residence of our mortal flesh, will like us be resurrected and become our immortal home, where those who believe in Christ, follow his laws, and endure to the end, will live with Christ forever. John the Revelator saw it all. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. 
I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I shall end this with this declaration. There is no such thing as something coming from nothing. There is no such thing as an accidental universe, or accidental life, or accidental man. Individual galaxies may be dated, I suppose, and individual clusters of galaxies which form a universe, as all things subject to entropy have a beginning and an end. But creation has neither beginning nor end. Scientists will find, if they look deep enough into space, that before our little cosmos there are others older and greater, and beyond that still others older and greater. Creation is endless. Eternity goes backward forever and forever forward, without beginning or ending. We ourselves are children of eternity, marooned for a short time on this small island we call Earth. We were sent here by our Heavenly Father for a purpose. It is a trial, a brief probationary state, to give us free will, agency, and liberty. When as spirits we left heaven to come to Earth and gain a mortal body, He drew a veil over our minds, causing us to forget our former home. That was the only way we could grow in faith and increase free will. Much of what we learn here is a remembrance of that which we already knew. Our mortal minds forget that which our spirits are constantly whispering to us. But we do not always listen. In Hamlet's words, after seeing his father's ghost to his friend Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, that are dreamt of in your philosophy. We are immortal beings, having a mortal experience. We, however, are children of immortality, and will one day, because of the atonement of Christ, with an immortal resurrected body, realize our divine nature. Life on this temporary planet will be a dream, and we will once again feel at home in eternity. We are today choosing whether we will return to our Father in heaven and live with him forever, or whether we will turn our backs on him and choose our own path, following the final judgment never to see him again. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.